I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Women in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Understanding how people use technology across cultures around the world gives us valuable insights. Genevieve Bell, anthropologist and distinguished professor at the Australian National University, talked about her work in anthropology and technology. Genevieve has been working in technology since the 1990s. We talked about her time working in Silicon Valley, particularly at Intel, where she was studying how different groups of people were using technology. Later on, we talked about how technology and mass surveillance are being used to fight COVID-19. Genevieve explained solutions we're seeing around the world and the trade-offs. In 2013, Genevieve was the recipient of the Women of Vision Abby Award for Leadership. Abby Awards are presented by AnitaB.org, a global nonprofit with a goal of reaching 50-50 gender equity in tech by 2025. Abby Awards honor and celebrate women who have led innovations and made a notable impact on business or society through technology. This episode is part of a series of shows that highlight the work of previous Abby Award winners. For more information about the Abby Awards, go to anitab.org. Before we move on with the interview, I'm really excited to announce that season one of the 5-Minute Mentor podcast is available. This is a podcast where you'll get advice from prominent people in tech, authors, journalists, artists, and more. Go to mentors.fm for more information about the show. Thank you. Genevieve Bell, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. It's my pleasure to be here. Today we're going to talk about various topics, anthropology, technology, and also the use of mass surveillance to fight COVID-19. But before we get into that, I want to begin with your background in anthropology. For this interview, I was curious and I looked up a definition for anthropology and it said it's the study of human beings and their ancestors through time and space in relation to physical character, environmental and social relations and culture. I'm curious about this area in the context of your work in the tech industry since the late 1990s. To you, what has been the relationship between anthropology and technology? Wow, okay, that's a big question. And that's an excellent definition of anthropology. So I tend to think of anthropology as being the study of people and the things that matter to them. And I'm lucky, I'm not only the anthropologist, but I'm the daughter of an anthropologist too. So I grew up on my mother's field sites in Central and Northern Australia in the 1970s and 1980s. So I grew up in Aboriginal communities and I grew up with Aboriginal people who taught me their language and who took me on their country and told me the stories of those places. And it was an extraordinarily rich childhood. And it left me with a very clear sense that understanding different kind of cultures in the places where they make meaning in their lives is hugely important. So I took myself out of Australia and came to America to go to university. I did my undergraduate degree at Bryn Mawr and then my PhD at Stanford. And by the time I got to doing my PhD, I was still really interested in ideas about Indigenous people and how Indigenous people 
work on parcel of broader worlds and I had been working for my doctoral work on a history of one of the first boarding schools for Native people in the U.S. that operated in rural Pennsylvania in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And I was really interested in the impact of that boarding school on Indigenous cultures and on a politicization of Indigenous people in the early 20th century. And I finished all of that work and I was at Stanford on the faculty, which was kind of unusual, and I was teaching anthropology. Uh, Native American studies, also anthropological theory. I was really concerned with ideas about how people thought about themselves, how they identified, how their ways of thinking about themselves shaped how they engaged with other cultures and cultural processes. And I was also teaching feminist theory and critical theory. And the better question here would be not how does all of that relate to Intel or the tech sector, but how on earth did you even get from there to the tech sector? <laughs> and the embarrassing story looking at it now is that I met a man in a bar in Palo Alto in the late 1990s, 1998 to be precise. The bar was called Pearls. It is now long gone. It was in downtown Palo Alto. I was there with a mate of mine and I got talking to some guy in the bar and he asked me what I did. And I said, I was an anthropologist. He said, what's that? I said, I studied people. He said, why? I said, I found them interesting. He said, what on earth do you do with that? I said, I was a professor. And he said, couldn't you do more? And I thought that was an extraordinarily strange statement because I loved being an academic. I loved teaching. I loved my research. I loved all of those things. I didn't really think a lot more of it until he tracked me down at my house the next day. And that was odd because I hadn't given him my phone number. And it turned out he'd called every anthropology department in the Bay Area looking for a redheaded Australian. And Stanford gave up my own phone number, which seems extraordinary now. And ultimately, I met his colleagues. I got introduced to a bunch of people who were venture capitalists and serial entrepreneurs. And I met the people at Intel. And I started to realize that the world of making technology and of innovation was being driven by engineers and computer scientists. And a lot of it was happening without any sort of sense of what humans might care about. And so when Intel started recruiting me, I had a hard time getting my head around what I would do in a company like Intel. So it was a big tech company making microprocessors at that point. But increasingly, I started to think through what it meant to care about people and think that you should have a rich understanding of what made humans tick in all endeavors. And so in September, or August, actually, August of 1998, I did something quite radical for an anthropologist, which is that I quit the university sector and I joined the tech sector. And that opened up what has now been a 20 plus year adventure of attempting to take what I knew how to do as an anthropologist, which is a deep care about people, what makes them tick, what they care about for themselves, their families, their communities, even their countries, and then also what frustrates them, and to use those insights to help drive innovation and next generation technology development. So that's what I've spent the last 22 years doing. Back then when you were first starting this work at Intel, do you remember some of the key findings that came from the studies that you did on you know, how different cultures around the globe are using technology? Oh, sure. Some of that feels like it was just yesterday, although it's such a long time ago. And it's such a long time ago in terms of technology, too, because if you think back to 1998, 1999, so last century, <laughs> you have to go back to a world where Google barely existed, Amazon just sold music, eBay was a platform we all used, and almost no one had a cell phone in America. And we still had desktops. You know, we still went to our computers. We didn't take them with us. The web barely existed, and we used dial-up for the most part. Oh, yeah, and television wasn't smart yet. <laughs> and I don't think we knew what location-based services were. So 1998 feels like a really long 
time ago, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, in those days we started out, and we, there were a couple of us at Intel, we started out by going to other countries actually because that was the world of America, but that wasn't true everywhere else. So in 1999, some of my colleagues and I went and spent some time in Western Europe. And Western Europe in the late 1990s was very different than the US. There were already a lot of mobile phones. Both Spain and Italy had hit a crossover in terms of the number of mobile phones in the country was more than 50% of the adults had mobile phones. And people were texting a lot and there were already early location services. WAP was the big protocol at that point. And there were fewer computers in the homes and there were more cyber cafes. So computers were something you visited, but you didn't visit them at home. You went to a cyber cafe on your way to work or your way home from work. And it felt like a really different future. And I think we came back from those trips to Europe, to the US, and said, hey, mobile phones, they're going to be big. Mm. <laughs> There's a lot of mobile phones. That texting thing, that SMS, that feels like a big thing. Yeah. And I remember one of my colleagues at Intel going, eh. He said, text messaging is just a phase Europe is going through. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure about that. And so for us, it was less about were the insights earth shattering and more about could we tell some stories about some different trajectories for technology and help people see that it wasn't just what was happening in Northern California or Northern Oregon or Southern Washington State, right? That in fact, there were these very different kind of ways that people understood technology and different patterns of use and different payment systems and different problems that were being solved. And so I think in the early days, part of our job was just to be a, a sensor, basically, to kind of say, listen, the world isn't what goes on in Hillsborough, Oregon, or Santa Clara, California, or Cupertino, right? That there is a much bigger, or Redmond, there's a much bigger world out there and people are doing really different stuff. And so for us, it was partly just, could we start to tell those different stories? And in knowing those stories, could you start to anticipate that the future of computing might not just be a desktop that you visited, but some other things? And so mostly we spent a lot of time telling stories. And I know that doesn't sound like it should matter very much when people were working out how to build Google <laughs> and Facebook. But it turns out that telling stories about how people were using technology and how people were using technology differently may not sound like a lot, but it turns out to be critically important in how you give people a different imagination and how you stage alternate futures for people. And for me, part of the job of being a, an anthropologist inside a tech company was to keep reminding people that there were multiple possible futures and multiple different ways that the world might unfold, not just one. And it was always about, could you get to a diversity of experience and a diversity of, well, possibilities. Exactly. And I think now, particularly this area that you're describing of telling stories and seeing how technology is being used or could potentially be used across different parts of the world is very relevant now because I've come across various articles where, you know, we see Google's and messaging tools or social media being used completely different in other cultures. Sometimes misused. And I think if, if we have more people thinking and analyzing about this, we could take into account more of both the positive and negative impacts, right? Oh, absolutely. And we could see different possibilities, right? I mean, it was very clear from the time that my colleagues and I had spent in Europe that mobile platforms were going to be game changers, that the notion of being able to carry your compute with you was going to be a very different experience than visiting it. And, you know, if you paid attention to what was going on globally, you were also really clear very early that 
micropayment systems were evolving in African countries and developing there because they were solving a different kind of problem. And it took a while for micropayments to kind of take off elsewhere, but they were huge in Nigeria and Kenya and Uganda from the really late 90s. And, you know, you could see that different ideas about content on phones was going to matter. I mean, I remember being in India in 99 and again in 2001, 2002, and people were already working out how to move content around in such a way where you thought, you know, at some point people are going to be watching movies on their phones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That seemed impossible to imagine when it was a Nokia candy bar. But looking at what people were doing in other places sparked all kinds of possibilities. And to your point, you also then had to start thinking about what are the assumptions we're making about how this technology will be used that are based on being in one place and that place isn't representative of everything. So, you know, how do we do a better job of unpacking and making clear the assumptions? Because there are always assumptions, right? But being clearer about what they are and where you're making those decisions was a hugely important thing for me. And I think an important part of doing a better job of building next generation technologies and technical systems. Looking back since your time working at this in the 90s until now, has there been something that has taken you by surprise or that you didn't see coming as early as we got it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you're a futurist. What did you get wrong? <laughs> Listen, there's some things that I think took longer and then there's some things where it was just the kind of a moment, right? So we are having this conversation in April 2020. You and I are both acutely aware of the places we sit in are in the moment of a pandemic, the proportions of which are kind of unprecedented. And I don't like that phrase, but we don't have a historical analog for what's happening right now. One of the things that's been striking around me at the moment is that I haven't seen money in a long time, like cash money. Australia was always a country that has had an early adoption cycle when it came to new payment systems. We had ATMs before they were popular in the US. We've had contactless payment structures in Australia for more than three years now, maybe even four. And somehow over the last six weeks, because we've all been under a stay-at-home restriction really for 60, well, 30 days now, um, and we were socially distancing before that, the use of cash has basically dropped to almost nothing. And it's fascinating to see a moment that propelled us into a completely different use factor, right? And so would I have guessed two years ago that cash would die in 2020? Probably not, because I always thought cash was persistent, right? There are other things where I'm interested by how much things didn't change, but the format did. So I remember back in 98, 99, there was a whole discussion about when the internet got big, it would kill television. They used to talk about this dreadful phrase, the war for the eyeballs, and the internet was going to win. And I remember thinking at the time, listen, here's the thing. People really like someone telling them a story. They don't necessarily want to have to make their own. It's not a choose your own adventure. We actually like a story that will transport us and give us a moment of being able to be somewhere else. Even if it's a silly story, even if it's, you know, America's Got Talent or The Housewives of Pick a Place or something as narratively sophisticated as, you know, Game of Thrones or Pick Your Poison, basically. And for me, what's been interesting to watch over the last 20 plus years is that the internet did not, in fact, kill television. It transformed the mechanisms by which we could get TV. It changed the payment structures that funded television. It created whole new arbiters of taste. It made unexpected people into content producers, like the people who sold me music 20 years ago who now make television. And it let a whole lot of new voices into the conversation who might not have been there before, but the internet didn't kill television. It, in fact, gave it a second, third, fourth, and fifth life. 
And so sometimes the things that have most surprised me were actually about the ways things persisted, not about the ways things stopped. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing I get the most comfort from at one level is that whilst the world around us keeps changing and sometimes at an unprecedented speed, the things that make us human feel remarkably persistent, for better and for worse. Exactly. And earlier you mentioned we're in April 2020. It's an unusual time. Like you said, we're in the middle of a pandemic from COVID-19. So I want to switch gears now and talk about some of your thoughts around this. I read your article on the MIT Technology Review titled, We Need Mass Surveillance to Fight COVID-19, But It Doesn't Have to be Creepy. Can you talk about what you think in terms of mass surveillance? I absolutely can. I need to keep saying, I didn't come up with that title. Okay. Because <laughs> I think I, I couldn't have said any of those things without wanting to problematize all of them. So part of what has been really striking to me in the responses to the current pandemic and to COVID-19 more broadly has been the speed at which certain kinds of solutions are being imagined and the scale at which they're having to take place. So viruses that expand exponentially like this one does require the world to move exponentially too, right? You can't kind of have your same usual pace of response. And one of the things that's been fascinating to watch is that in different countries, different governments and different public health organizations have chosen to use an entire portfolio of options in different kinds of ways. So public health and the notion of public health, the idea that there can be a governmental response to a population in crisis is an old one, right? We've had public health in one way or another in many countries, for some places for hundreds of years. It's certainly in Western countries since the 1850s and 1860s. One of the tools that public health officials have used for at least that long is this notion of contact tracing. The idea being that if you have an outbreak of a disease or a virus, you need to find its points of origin. And you also need to find every person who is potentially infected. You need to find where they've been and who they've been in contact with so that you can start to slow the spread of a disease or ultimately stop it. And so when public health officials do contact tracing, what they're usually doing is at the point someone's been identified as infected, they are sitting that person down in some kind of interview situation saying, okay, where have you been for the period of time in which we imagined you were infectious? So for COVID-19, that's two weeks. Where have you been for the last fortnight? You would be asked the last two weeks. And you would be asked to kind of think about all the places you'd been and the people you'd seen and the stuff you had done. And for most of us, working out where we were for the last two weeks is a non-trivial problem. And you probably go looking at some stuff to help you. You'd look at your calendar. You may look at your mapping on your phone. You may look at your phone. You may look at your payment systems. You may call someone and go, did I see you in this last fortnight? And that's a slow methodology. And it requires a lot of patience. And it has some gaps in it, right? And if you need to move more quickly and more comprehensively, you want as many tools at your disposal as you can. So in some countries around the world, Taiwan would be one, Singapore would be another, South Korea too. Public health officials there have used digital data to help track where people have been. Everything from pings on cell towers for mobile phones to facial recognition to banking data to basically say to people, do you think you were here? Were you here? What Taiwan and Singapore and a couple of other countries have done, and it's now being mooted in many other countries, 
is use a track and tracing technology implemented on the mobile phone platforms. What most of these systems propose to do one way or another is either help public health officials trace where someone has been by using their phone, more on that in a second, or it's being used to help patients remember where they've been, which is slightly different than the public health angle, or it's being used as a way of tracking whole populations. So very different kind of forms of contact tracing. Each one of those clearly has pros and cons, and all of them come out of this public health methodology, which over many years in many countries also has this additional kind of morality to it. The idea that being sick is bad, the idea that sickness comes from certain populations, and there's often been a stigma attached to being sick. So thinking about new technologies in this space, it's also important to kind of think about how do we uncouple, decouple the relationship between being a point in this loop to being, you know, somehow marginalized. So those are all complexities, right? The current generation of track and trace technology, there's a couple of them in market. There's a protocol that Apple and Google have built, and then there's what's being used most predominantly in Singapore. In both instances, what they're doing is interesting because they're not using GPS location, they're using proximity sensing. So both in Singapore and in the Apple Google instantiation, what they do is take advantage of the Bluetooth in your phone. So you think about the phone that's in your hand that you may be listening to this podcast on. Most phones have a Bluetooth radio in it, and that Bluetooth radio is just constantly pinging. I think of it as being a beacon, basically. It just keeps going, hi, 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 and it's listening for other beacons going, hi, back. Or, you know, another one of my colleagues said, it's Marco Polo. <laughs> the phone says, my, listen, you know, trying to make a connection, basically. What these protocols do is they take advantage of Bluetooth as a way of knowing who you've been near. Because truthfully, in tracking a disease, we don't want to know where you've or this virus. We don't want to know where you've been absolutely. We want to know where you've been relatively. We don't need to know you were at the coffee shop. We need to know who was around you at the coffee shop because it's the people that you were near that you have made vulnerable. So the proximity sensing is designed to work out who you were around, not where you have been absolutely. The challenge with that is the challenge with all apps that collect data is who gets to see that data, how that data is collected and presented. So is the data, it says it's Genevieve Bell's phone, it's this phone number, here's all the other information about her, or is it a secure key that my phone has produced that now exists as an anonymized object? So with all apps of this kind, it's those questions, right? How's the data presented? Who has the data? Who has access to the data? How long do they have access to that data for? And how's it going to be used over time? And oh, by the way, data collected by a government is very different than data collected by a commercial enterprise. And as human beings, we tend to have different desires for data that is collected by a company versus a government, and we hold them to different standards, and they're regulated differently. I think the most interesting thing about the Taiwanese solutions, because the Taiwanese have done an enormous amount with citizen data, is that they've given all of it a sunset clause. So they've basically said, we will only commingle certain data sets and hold your data for 30 days because they're aware that maybe who you were with, that's a very personal thing, right? It's relevant for viral spread, but it shouldn't be relevant to government over time. Who you spend your time with are personal and intimate decisions. They ought not be governmental decisions. And so the Taiwanese government's been very clear about having what you'd call a sunset clause on the collection of data. So for me, in thinking about sort of how you might want to have a technically augmented intervention around COVID-19, it's hugely important to ask the questions about 
who's collecting the data, who gets to have access to the data. In the Apple and Google protocol, it's only public health officials. So who gets to have access to the data? How long is it stored and where? Is it stored on your phone? Is it stored on a secure server? How long is it stored for? And then what are the consequences of participation or not participation? Because, of course, the other thing about all of these contact tracing apps is they make a series of assumptions that everyone has one phone. Now, of course, some people have more than one phone and some people have no phones. Some people use other people's phones. So that's already kind of a complicated thing. It assumes that proximity is the same as contact. And if you were to live in a high-density apartment, your phone is near the phones of the people who are on the floors below you and above you and in the rooms next to you, and you may never see them. So proximity and contact are entirely the same thing. And there are kind of notions about how vulnerable Bluetooth is to spoofing and hacking and whether people have it turned on or not and how well it uses your battery. So it's an imperfect solution. And whilst I know it sometimes feels like in moments of crisis, we should just say yes to everything. I actually think it's one of the times when you should ask more and more critical questions. So you started by asking me mass surveillance discuss. I think the thing about public health crises is it's always about mass surveillance, but it's about mass surveillance for a very particular intentionality, and it should be limited only to the moment of the outbreak. Exactly. And I particularly like how you mentioned earlier, and you also mentioned this in the article, where we already doing this when we ask ourselves and we ask other people, where have you been? So we're just using technology now to help answer that question. And like you said, it's not perfect. There can be errors about the proximity sensors, but even without the technology, there can also be errors. People forget things, like you said, and there are many holes in their answers. So I think what you are trying to say with all this is what happens with the data, who gets to see it, establishing those and having that conversation of what that should look like, but also determining the purpose of contact tracing. And like you mentioned, there were several purposes for public health, to help patients, and the third one was you know, for citizens. Can you talk a bit more about the differences between these three purposes? Oh, absolutely. So contact tracing in the public health domain has always been about taking an individual patient who has a diagnosis and an infection at that point, or was diagnosed as infected, and working out where they've been. And that contact tracing then is always backward looking, right? It's about going, where were you? Who did you see? And then finding all of those people that you've encountered and reaching out to all of them and asking them where they've been and testing them. So the thing about contact tracing in the public health space is it only works when it's also accompanied by a rigorous testing regime. So you have to be able to test lots of people and test them repeatedly. And you have to be able to test both for viral presence and arguably over time for antibodies. Public health contact tracing also only works when you have an agreed to set of protocols about quarantining, self-isolation and social distancing. So it's one of a series of tools and a big system, right? So in the public health space, in some ways it's well rehearsed and the notion of using digital mechanisms to speed up and create more kind of possibilities of contact that you can trace seems like a good thing, right? But it's also a space that's in some ways quite well understood. There is an emerging body of contact tracing using digital means to help patients. So there's an app that launched in the state of Massachusetts in the United States in the last couple of weeks called Buoy or Boy, I think you probably say in American English. 
Um, and it's designed to help a patient remember where they've been. So should you be concerned that you've been in contact with someone who's been infected or you are yourself infected, this app lets you remember where you were. It lets you, as one of my medical colleagues say, triage your worry. <laughs> and it lets you know at the point you think you might be infected where you need to go for resources and how to make sure you present at a hospital or a doctor's office in such a way that you are minimizing your risk to others. So the kind of contact trace there is to prompt human memory and help individual potential patients make better decisions. So very different than the public health locus, right? Because the locus there is the individual patient and their kind of memory and how they've been thinking. The citizen health one is a different idea altogether, right? So sort of the idea of using contact tracing at scale, so anonymized at a level that would look very different. So there are early versions of using this kind of contact tracing, and there's sort of, there are disparate bunch of things, right? So whether it is, we've seen a few of them in the US, state governments asking phone companies to give up maps of location data. So highly anonymized, but basically, if you were to say to a mobile phone service provider in the US, I need to see where everyone was yesterday, the day before and the day before that. So I can see, are there hot spots where people are gathering at a density that is possibly problematic so that I can go find a better solution? In Australia, we've done a few versions of that, and it's let us decide that we needed to change the parking structures in certain public parks so that people could still use them but achieve social distancing. So part of that kind of citizen health is to say, are there ways we can use anonymized data at scale that would let us better use our public spaces, better utilize certain kinds of infrastructures uh, that would let us see the potential of hotspots before they happened? So I know in the US, there's been a little bit of use of the anonymized data produced by smart internet connected thermometers. So you could start to see where there were spikes in temperature. There's a little bit of a conversation happening in a few public health centers around the world about can we use an analysis of sewage and human waste to say, is the virus present in certain communities? Granularity is not there yet, but it would be another way of thinking about anonymized data at scale to help citizens rather than individual patients. And so for me, each one of those has different challenges in terms of how we think about data, who has access, what patterns are being generated and who sees them. They all also raise interesting questions for me about notions of privacy. We often think about privacy as being about individuals, but in some instances of contact tracing, particularly the public health and the patient journeys, it implicates other people. So if I become infected and I need to remember everyone I've seen, suddenly a whole lot of people in my social network are impacted by my diagnosis and their privacy may in turn be breached because I'm sick. And how we think about that conversation feels like a degree of subtlety about privacy we haven't had historically. Do you think we're going to start seeing some of those conversations? I think we already are. I mean, I think there's a couple of different initiatives going on globally to talk about privacy preserving data anonymization. There's an initiative coming out of my research institute here at the Australian National University to develop a protocol for asking questions about all the apps. Mm -hmm. um, and I can send you a pointer to the link so we can post it. Sure. There's a similar one coming out of the US where people are starting to speculate about how would you do privacy preserving data anonymization specifically for these things. So those conversations are being had. In Australia, where we had a very interesting moment, epidemiologically speaking. So we have bent the curve in Australia, right? We are down to single-digit 
incidence of infections in all of our states. We've been under social isolation for and social distancing for over a month. We've closed our national borders, which is a complicated thing. Mm -hmm. But we have seen the impact on our numbers. And so the nation is contemplating the adoption or the introduction of a contact tracing app, along with some other mechanisms to sort of start thinking about what happens next. And that is being hotly debated here in Australia. It's not a one and done, right? The government has had to make some very clear decisions about how they want to stage this. They've had to make some very clear statements about who have access to the data and who won't. They've been very clear that it's going to be public health officials only, that the police can't have a look-see. They've been clear about the use of a sunset clause. They are still debating how much of the source code they can or they will make open. And there has been a rigorous and robust debate in the press and social media about what all of this would look like. So it's hardly been a complete acceptance. And truthfully, if you look at the Singaporean data, the uptake of that their app, which I think is called Trace Together, maybe the uptake of that app's only been 20% of the population. So I think this is a space where the conversations look very, very different in different countries and depending on the kind of techniques involved. And again, the kind of, it implicates, do you trust your government? What are you willing to trade off in the short and medium term? And truthfully, it's easy to forget because this feels so overwhelming. Yeah. We have been debating privacy and surveillance and trust and who has our data. Those have been live and active conversations for more than a decade. So this isn't suddenly this moment where we went, oh, we should talk about data and privacy. It's like, yeah, we've been talking about that for a while. So this sort of is part of a much bigger conversation, which is easy to forget. Exactly. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. This is about the Abbey Award. In 2013, you were the recipient of the Women of Vision Abbey Award for leadership. What did getting this award mean to you? Oh, that's a very, very fond moment for me because all of my team was all there. I remember all the people who worked for me were there. They came and they dressed up. What did it mean to me? Listen, I was lucky enough to have met Anita Borg when I was a little bit younger and she was a force of nature and she was an extraordinary woman. And I've been lucky enough over the arc of my time at Intel and in the Valley to have met many of the women that Anita knew and many of the women who've had this award. And it is an extraordinary sisterhood. It is an extraordinary collection of people. And I think the thing for me is that I'm always acutely aware that you are only as successful as the people who came before you and the people that you bring up after you. And that your capacity to be generous about building space for others is the thing you should most be measured by. So it was wonderful to be recognized. But for me, that was a um, it was a moment of pleasure for me. But it just reminded me of how much more work there needed to be done. I mean, it was this sort of lovely moment of being in a room full of women, which is always great. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and women celebrating scale, which was completely cool and wonderful. But it was also that kind of reminder that we still have to have awards for women of vision, not people of vision. And there was something about that notion of it will one day be good to be recognized for being a visionary regardless of one's gender. And thinking through the kind of bittersweetness of all of that was tricky. But it was a wonderful moment because there were some people in the room I'm deeply fond of. And because it was really lovely to have that moment of having all those people in the room celebrating and recognizing the accomplishments, not of me, but of all of us to be there. Yeah, it was lovely. And does this award have an impact in your career in any sort of way, like opportunities opened up or meeting 
other kind of people like you mentioned earlier? Uh, so interestingly enough, then the night I won that award, our new CEO had just taken his job. So he's uh, no longer the CEO of Intel, but at the time it was his first month on the job. And it was an interesting moment to encounter him newly in the job and for him to encounter me. And I think there was something about winning awards like that is a moment where people get to see you for the first time, even if they've known you for a little while. And so there's sort of that moment of you get to reintroduce yourself and you get to be seen through a slightly different lens. And I've always been incredibly grateful to the Amelia Borg Foundation because they did recognize me and it let a whole lot of people who knew me see me again for the first time and see a slightly different side of me. And I remember that the speech I gave that night was a more personal one than I often give. And I was reflecting on how I'd come to that moment in time. And there is a, a sweetness about being able to have the opportunity to tell people a little bit about your personal journey, not just your professional one that I always think is really important. Because it's easy to look at people and be a little bit mesmerized, the wrong word, but a little bit daunted by their professional accomplishments and to think, oh, I can't ever be that person. And I tend to think that we have a responsibility when we get to leadership positions to talk a little bit about our personal journeys and how we came to be in the places we are because it lets other people see their own journeys as journeys to leadership or at least the possibility that they could be. And for me, that kind of room to humanize yourself is always really important. And I was very grateful for the opportunity to do it that night. Yeah, and I know you mentioned some of that at the beginning with, you know, growing up in Australia and being exposed to Aboriginals and Indigenous people, right? Yep. Well, Genevieve, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. It's been my absolute pleasure.